Broadcasting from Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. This is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome, everyone, to the podcast that unites Republicans and Democrats by giving them both something they can hate. Hope you're having a pleasant week. Uh, For this month, as you may or may not know, we've been exploring the U.S. military. And for this week's installment, I asked Benari Polk, who's an old friend of mine from my days in the Boston comedy scene, to join me. Now, Benari's been active duty military for the last 20 years, and he served in the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and did a stint in Guantanamo Bay as an enlisted man, not not a detainee. Uh, so I figured he might have a few interesting things to say. And in addition to serving our country for the last two decades, Benari was also senior producer for the nightly show with Larry Wilmore on Comedy Central and is currently part of the GIs of Comedy, which is a group of enlisted men who travel the globe entertaining the troops. Now, Benari's been enlisted for the entire War on Terror, and one of the things I wanted to find out was what his take was and the impact that's had in the regions, the military, and on our country as a whole. Most fascinating tidbit, the role Big Macs play in the War on Terror. You're going to figure that one out in a bit. So I guess first off, Benari, welcome, and, uh, and happy belated Veterans Day as well. No, thank you for honoring my service. It really, the real heroes are the ones who thank me. All right. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy to be a hero, Benari. Thank you for your service. And, and I guess for those, of you who, for those of us who don't know you, which is many people who <laughs> aren't me, um, could, you very, could, yeah, could, you, could you very quickly kind of go through who you are and, and, and what you do in the, uh, in the sure. U.S. Armed Forces? Uh, my name is Benari. I am a, uh, I'm a writer, producer, and comedian. And uh, also, when I'm not doing that, I'm a, currently a master sergeant in the United States Army Reserve, uh, currently focusing on uh, public affairs and training. Uh, and um, yeah, I've, uh, I've been in for uh, 20 years now. Uh, so it's been quite an interesting ride. Now, Master Sergeant. So, what? Because I'm entirely unfamiliar with sure. the ranking system. Like, so it's uh, it's high ranking uh, enlisted. So, as I said, I graduated college, and most people go officer because it's way more money. Um, but I was like, I'm a working mm-hmm. man, so I went enlisted, and <laughs> very, uh, you know, very like boots on the ground kind of thing. Uh, and got it. Uh, yeah, I kind of stayed. Every time uh, I was thinking about transferring over to the officer side, I kept getting promoted. Um, and I hit E8. So I think the only thing left for me to do would become a, a sergeant major, which uh, I'll say now mm-hmm. I have no real interest in, uh, no real interest in, uh, in becoming a sergeant major and walking around and yelling at soldiers to like tie their bootlaces and, you know, fix their collars. But get back to me in a couple yeah. of years and then I'm a sergeant major. And <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So you're kind of like, you've got, you've got all the benefits of being a sergeant without like the dress code enforcement. It sounds like, is that, is that fair? Or is that oversimplified? Yeah. Okay. Being a master sergeant is actually a terrific rank because you're high enough rank that most people can't really fuck with you. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and officers sort of rely on you for your opinion, but they don't really, you know, there's nothing, I don't have to depend on them for, you know, you're, 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 it's a system that runs on evaluations and your chain of command. Yeah. Um, but the sweet spot is finding something where you're basically, you get to do your job. And if you're good at your job, you're recognized for it, but you don't have to report to that many people. 
So what's great is I have a very uh, short list of people I have to report to. So it's great. Yeah. And now why would you go into the officer side or why would somebody go into the officer side of things other than the money? It's where you really are crafting more strategy. Got it. And you're talking about the strategic overview of how to carry out the mission. You're also looking at you're you're looking at the much bigger picture here. Yeah. Um, so it's you know it's the guys with charts and PowerPoint presentations, and they're they're saying, okay, here's our objectives, and we need to if we cut them off on this ridge, we need to do that. And then it's the enlisted guys that usually have to figure out how they're going to make that happen. Got it. Got it. So I guess like if I'm trying to put it in terms I understand, if if I want to be like the guy in the forward operating base p- playing Nerf football, like in zero dark 30, uh, then I want to be the enlisted guy. And if I want to be like the suit, like Tom Cruise and a few good men, then I go officer route. Is that kind of the way it goes or pretty much nailed All right. it? All right. You nailed it, man. Yeah. See, I'm yeah. an expert already. I'm an expert already. Oh, yeah. we forgot the disclaimer, Benari. Oh, of course, your yeah. favorite part. Yes. Uh, I, of course, uh, in my opinions are my own and in no way represent those of the United States Army, the U.S. Armed Forces, our allies, uh, or people real or imagined. Yep. All right. There we go. We go. Thank you. Really is my favorite part. I think we could stop <laughs> now. Um, so I know when, obviously, when we were doing stand-up together, uh, I, I, I remember you'd go on deployments and you'd just kind of disappear for a while. you know so like you'd be you'd be hanging around and i'd see at the shows and then all of a sudden banari's gone and where'd he go oh we don't know and he can't tell us all i remember is that from your communications online you had playstation wherever you were (laughs) but now on one of those trips you actually were you were working at at gitmo right right so my first deployment was in uh, guantanamo bay and uh it was a it was early on in, in the global war on terror. So I was there in 02 to 03. And I was actually there before the Iraq war started. So right. uh, deploy- so my deployment actually got extended because um, someone decided to start a second war. <laughs> Guantanamo is this very curious place because we had this agreement with Cuba and we had this base there and it's, it's a Marine base uh, or is run by the Marines at the time. And, Basically, the agreement was that neither side could give it up without both sides agreeing to it. And Cuba is a communist country. Mm-hmm. So Guantanamo, like the eight, eight or so miles of Guantanamo is basically just American soil right in the middle of this communist country. Mm-hmm. And it's all surrounded. So the airspace is that, you know, there was all sorts of restrictions at that time. And you, to get there, you had to fly like all the way around. There was, there was no real direct way to get in there. Um, and Initially, it had been a place for refugees to sort of come in. And then after 9-11, it became the place where we held detainees. Because if you, let's say, were, I don't know, a vice president who was super interested in skirting uh, international legal laws, Mm -hmm. and you needed a place to stash people while you figured out what you were going to do with them, Guantanamo is the place for you. Because it wasn't, it's not really on it's not in America per se, but it's still soil that's controlled by the U.S. But the laws around it, are, you know, you can kind of sort of make them up uh, if you have some good lawyers. So that's where we put the detainees while we tried to figure out how we were going to prosecute them and what we were going to do. Yeah, yeah. And so you were there and, when the detainees were there. Is that yes? Got it. So uh, and they had just basically, I got there uh, about. It took them about a year to figure out how to, you know 
<laughs> build detention facilities that were um, that were in compliance with Geneva Conventions and all that. And um, that was very important. And what was also really interesting was Guantanamo, all my deployments, it was the most locked down in terms of information. Mm-hmm. And I should mention that I was sent to Guantanamo as part of a public affairs unit. That's a very difficult <laughs> job. You, you you probably have the most difficult mission in the war on terror with that alone. So Yeah. So we got there and it was really, you know, okay, we can't say anything about, you know, here, we can't talk about details of the mission here. We had, uh, we called it alphabet city uh, because we had the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, yeah. who knows what else, uh, all the secret squirrel stuff. And, you know, I got to sit in and document a lot of things. Um, I documented some interrogations. I found out, you know, it was very interesting things. You, we started learning a lot about basically how they were gathering information and a lot of the uh, counterinsurgency and counter um, information programs that they were running, how they, how learning how these groups communicated with each other, how they passed information uh-huh. to each other and what kind of information they were sharing. And, uh, you know, it was a, a very fascinating place. And I got to do the morning radio show. On uh, because everything was so closed off, everything was very insular. So AFN, uh, Armed uh, Forces or American Forces Network, was basically like your main source. Yeah. Um, and uh, the local radio show was uh, the morning show was a country show, which uh, talk about uh, violating Geneva Conventions. <laughs> and <laughs> so we were forced to play country music from like the hours of nine to eleven mm-hmm. on the show. But I got to DJ, so. Uh, Basically, I would spend as much time talking as possible without having before I had to play a country music song. Yes. And then I found a great loophole, which was if the song was classified as country, I could play it. And there would be Chuck Berry or there would be Elvis or there would be, you know, classic, uh, you know, there, there would be some more classic stuff. I, I, uh, <laughs> I think there was there was like some Sheryl Crow that was. <laughs> That was designated as country, and it's like, okay, we're playing that. So they, so, so they had a system. They had the music file. They had the the military has the music classified by genre. So there's somebody in the U.S. in the Department of Defense whose job it is to classify that's country, that's not country, that's pop. That that's- actually, that actually comes from um, from the ra- uh, standard uh, radio. I'm not sure who does the classifications, but whatever the radio got stations it. Use, they outsource it. Um, they, they outsource okay. it just like everything else. Uh, yes. So. Let's it. Don't get me started, man. Uh, <laughs> don't get me yep, started. So uh, they took good, hardworking jobs away from someone in the DOD. That, now someone <laughs> exactly, exactly. Some some right. some poor pencil pusher is just sitting there with nothing to do, and nothing to do. Meanwhile, some poor kid in Taiwan is trying to figure out if this song is uh, hip hop, R and B. I mean, you know, it makes no sense. Who who made the decision on country? Uh, again. Uh, well, the, I will say that was the prime, the morning was the prime, you know, that's your prime drive time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so our commanding general at Gitmo, uh, was a huge country fan. Got it. Um, and his name was General Miller. And for some reason he, uh, he liked our show. And, um, in the afternoon he wanted to do like once a week, a call-in show. So halfway through the deployment, he decided, um, I want Polton to, uh, to, to bring me on and we're going to just, you know, answer questions. I'll, I'll answer their questions. And I think they called it commander's call. I was overruled. I wanted to call it Miller time. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> missed opportunity. <laughs> Complete missed opportunity. You know, come on, man. Yeah. Oh man. So, and, and now I remember this part is, is in the radio show too, the general wanted you to do interviews, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Oh, I had to do interviews. We also had a uh, a weekly newsletter, which was called The Wire. And this was long before the, uh, well, this was right before the HBO show. Yeah. So, um, and also, you know, if, you, if, if I'm putting my public affairs hat on and uh, you're talking about uh, detainees and uh, indefinite detentions for people, maybe don't call it the yeah. wire and have like, you know, razor wire as, as your, yes. <laughs> as your slogan yeah. and your logo. Like, yeah. Uh, you know, it's like the wire, nothing gets out yeah. of here. You know, great, great job for public affairs. <laughs> so, but yes, I would have to interview people and he was really, you know, we, we would, we would profile a lot of the units that were coming in and uh and and leaving and and the jobs that they were doing on the ground there but because we had so many other people we had intel analysts we had like i said we had uh people from all the different uh service branches we had uh alphabet city and uh a lot of them were doing highly classified work so they couldn't they we couldn't identify them in any specific way Mm -hmm. where someone reading it would know who or what they you know who they were and where they were from and all that sort of stuff Normally, the types of things that you say in a profile. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like if I was if I was profiling um, if I if I was profiling like the uh, the one hundred second, uh, you know, I could talk about uh, okay, well, they're out of uh, you know they're they're coming in from uh, Fort Hunter Liggett, and uh, uh, you know they've been on the ground for so many days, and it's you know here's uh, she 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 joined because her dad was in and something like that. That would be your normal profile. Well, he wanted me to profile like our analysts. But we couldn't identify them in any way. Like we couldn't talk about gender. We couldn't talk about where they're from. We couldn't talk about why they, what what job they were actually yeah. doing. So I would have to go out and sit with with people. And I remember, like, I wrote one profile. I figured out the guy liked Monty Python movies. So that's what we talked about. And the whole profile was just about, you know, we called him Monty, uh-huh. and we talked about pop culture and movies, and you know, really, you know, but. Hey, whatever made the general. Yeah, happy. I guess so. I guess so. And I guess like, you know, he probably wasn't appointed there for his choice in entertainment. Um, I'm also, I'm also no. just kind of thinking about the fact that an, an eight mile strip of land has a drive time radio show, which raises so many other questions, but. Well, we had a drive in movie theater. We got, uh, we got the best second run, first run movies. It was fantastic. Yeah. There was a, there was a McDonald's and a, and a, a subway. A McDonald's that blew my mind <laughs> when you told me about the McDonald's at Gitmo because you know I I look yeah. at when when I think of Gitmo or you know uh, it's I know Gitmo isn't the official term so I'll use Guantanamo Bay when I when I think of Guantanamo Bay you know I think of fences and Cuban soldiers mm-hmm. on the other end with Kalishnikovs mm-hmm. and like you know yeah, steely sure. looking Marines up in the tower. And yeah. I Jack Nicholson being like this goddamn heat is making me crazy. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's it. And I never think of like some dude going and getting like a fillet of fish or something like that once they get down from the tower. Uh, well, look, it contains multitudes. Um, there's yeah. a there is a there is a gift shop <laughs> because you know never never miss an opportunity to sell things. No. Yeah, they have uh, shot glasses. Um, they'll have t-shirts and hats. Uh, when I was there, I don't know what it's like now, but when I was there, they had, they had like, you'd have shot glasses or t-shirts with like, it don't get mo better than this. Wow. Um, you know, very surreal. Yeah. Place. Yeah. Now where was McDonald's ever a tool for interrogation? Yeah. It actually, in my opinion, was probably the most effective tool <laughs> for getting information. Um, because what we found, uh, was that, um, Detainees love Big Macs. Really? And, uh, you know, uh, yeah. And 
getting the ability to get a Big Mac for lunch brought all sorts of very useful <laughs> information. It was a, a sticker, a carrot sort of situation, and the uh, the, the Big Mac. Are we one. revealing sources um, and methods here, or is this? It's uh, this is that's about twenty. It's I mean, it's coming up on on. It's like eight. That's about eighteen years ago. So I think we're I think we're probably good declassified right now. by now, huh? It's been declassified, yeah. I think, at this point. But uh, you know, but that was. You know, it was very interesting again to see what worked and what didn't. And on the ground there, most of the everything I saw was very professional. Was handled um, very much within uh, Geneva Conventions, and there was this whole debate going on about okay, well, we have to ensure you know they're not technically prisoners of war, so we don't have to technically follow Geneva Conventions. But for us, for the for the troops on the ground, they had to follow you know all, all of that mm-hmm. um, very strict code. And some of the interrogations that I watched were very. I don't want to say that they were boring, but there was a lot of, I would say, waiting around yeah. in these interrogations. So like they would have a guy sitting there and he might be sitting there for two, three hours and they'd bring someone in in a suit. And I don't know who this guy, you know, is he CIA? What, what is he? I don't know if he speaks the language or not. He might say one or two things to him and then leave, just yeah. leave. And then they have to wait again. And then someone else comes, you know, and, and so, you know, there was all sorts of, again, I think there was a lot of trying to figure out what's the best way to do this mm-hmm. and uh, meanwhile uh, Abu Ghraib was happening <laughs> in, in Iraq and while everyone was paying attention to like what are they doing in, in Gitmo so I felt a little bit on the ground like we were being used as somewhat of a shell game to sort of take attention away from other things that might not have been to code and not have been ah, by the got book it book. got it because I was going to say if like I was in Gitmo and I was just grinding every day trying to get a straw of information out of someone and then i heard about abu Ghraib, i'd be pissed yeah well i mean look there were you know there was um you know the the hardest thing for a lot of those guys were you know the the mps who were um basically the they they were guarding the these detention facilities and and the detainees they became correction facilities specialists which is a different job altogether. So they ended up being cross-leveled. So they're already unhappy because they're not doing the job they signed up for. And then you had like, you know, so, so that, that um, is not really also evaluated because you sign up and you're like, I'll do whatever job that I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. But there's also this expectation that you're going to be doing the job that you're trained to do. And at that time, and I, I, I'm going to put the onus on uh, Don Rumsfeld here, there was, uh, there was just the feeling that it, it, it was plug and play, it, mix and match, anyone can do any job. And there was no real thought to the men and women on the ground who had to carry out the jobs um, and what kind of mental toll that takes on them to suddenly, I'm infantry, but now I got to drive a truck or I'm an MP, now I got to be a corrections facility specialist or you know, I'm, a, I'm a doctor and now, uh, now I have to be uh, EOD or something. Yeah. You know, it was that, it, it's not the same. This, we at that point and at this point, because it's a volunteer army, the emphasis had always been on skill sets and that you were highly trained in your that you were highly trained in your specific field. Mm-hmm. You know, you're always a soldier first, but you know, we want you to be highly skilled at what we train you to do. And and we should have been using those experts in, in their field instead of just moving people around and, and when you treat it like anybody can just fill fill that slot you know you start running into to problems with people who are like you know this isn't this isn't what i signed up for and so that becomes a problem with retention and and there's a there's a a ripple effect there as well got it got it so it sounds like that that sort of thing creates more more like a morale issue i guess is that 
Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, anytime people don't feel like they're doing the job they're supposed to be doing or that they want to be doing, um, you're going to hit a, a morale thing, which is why it's always important that the mission is clearly laid out and that it's a, a worthy mission and that everyone's you know behind it and, and buys it because then they're super excited to get it done. I mean, it's like anything. It's like any job. I mean, it's a it's a great job when things are, uh, you know, when, when you get to do the cool stuff. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, if you showed up to your job one day and then they, they suddenly told you like, hey, you got to go drive a truck through a minefield, you're probably going <laughs> to, but I didn't, I literally didn't sign up for that. I signed up to be, you know, I, I signed up to be a, a postal officer because I didn't want to drive a truck through yeah, minefields. What yeah, the hell? <laughs> yeah. And that's one, you know, one of the things that's come up in, in a couple of the interviews I've done is kind of how the military weathers the hyperpartisan environment we're in today. And, and, mm-hmm. and I would say if we're to kind of maybe expand that to what you're talking about here, really the sort of the politicization or the political aspects of military decisions. And, and I sure. guess you obviously had a view from that on the inside because the, the war on terror was, I mean, I would say it had a good degree of public support in the beginning, but obviously became much, much more controversial as time goes on. So how did the folks on the inside weather that storm? Well, it's interesting because I served uh, I served in Gitmo, but I served in Afghanistan and I served in Iraq. And I think there was a different treatment of the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq because I think part, you know, some of the the change in public support came from people just not thinking we needed to be in mm-hmm. Iraq um, that we took and we took our eye off the ball. Um, and then I think once we killed Osama bin Laden, there was a little bit of a question as the war continued in Afghanistan of why are we here? Or why are we still here? Or what is mm-hmm. this? And I think there was a real concerted effort to not sort of fumble the reconstruction part of the war. Mm-hmm. And, the difficulty there is what is exactly the mission that you're asking the military to do. And this goes back to, you know, the mission has to be clearly laid out and, and you need a, uh, and you need people to, to sort of be behind it. And I think the fact that the military is only 1% of the population of the United States now um, as a volunteer army, we're untethered from the rest of the country. So I think that the, the normal mechanism in place for letting the country know when it's been too long is a draft and because people are affected, Mm -hmm. right? So if after a certain amount of time, people say, Hey, I don't want to keep sending our sons and daughters uh, and our brothers and our sisters and our mothers and our fathers uh, to this war that we've been fighting for 20 years, it's time to stop. Um, They'll call their congressmen, they'll call their senators. They, you know, they vote people out and boom, you brought an end to the war. If they're, if 99% of the population has no real attachment to the fact that there is still a war going on, there's no incentive for them to to end it because it doesn't affect them. Yeah, that's that's something I've I've picked up on, and it sort of you know grinds my gears. Which is, you know, we talk a lot about support for the troops, and and we talk a lot about um, you know, or I, let's just put it there. You know, we we talk a lot about about yeah. support for the troops, but. So few of us are sending our friends and our brothers and sisters and sons and daughters there, and none of us are paying for it. I mean, it is we are quite right. liter- literally charging 
the war on credit. And we've been mm-hmm. Yeah. And and then, you know, it's a lot to ask for for the men and women coming home of like, hey, we charged all this, uh, you know, we charged the wars. Um, now we can't afford to take care of you. Or now we're going to take this out of your your pay on the back end. Or we're not going to give you the housing that, uh, you know, you, we, we said, or we're not going to give you the education benefits. Or there's all, they always find ways to, to nickel and dime the, <laughs> the folks who actually were doing the work. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's a bad faith argument. And because it happens to, so, to such a small segment of the population, it's, uh, they can get away with it. Yeah. Until, until you have veterans advocacy groups or military advocacy groups saying, hey, wait, hold up a minute. Yeah, and 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 how have we been doing on that front? Would you say <laughs> mixed bag? I yeah. would say mixed bag. Okay, um, you know, and again, look, the 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 military is a microcosm of, of the country. Yeah. People who sign up, it's an all volunteer army, so people come from all different backgrounds and have all different sorts of uh, political philosophies. And and uh, I, I would also say their uh, you know their experiences vary. Some people have terrific experiences with the military. Some people have very bad experiences with the military. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one thing that we have to acknowledge is what war does to the psyche of someone who signs up, both going to war, but also to those who have gone and come back, to those who haven't gone and maybe are, are waiting or feel, you know, there's people who feel survivor's guilt. Uh, I should go back. I should do more. There's people who want to just, you know, be doing that. That's that's the life they know and that's what they want to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very weird thing, you know, to ask, uh, some of these, these troops and, and, and especially at, you know, let's say you were part of the, the, uh, the, the training and rebuilding of, of Iraq, um, or part of the surge in like, uh, you know, Oh seven, uh, Oh eight. And, uh, you know, you go and, and you're, you know, the, you're the, the, you're running a town basically, you know, you and the military, you know, you're, you're in charge of troops, you're leading you know, you're the leader of men and uh, you're making deals with high ranking Iraqi officials and government and, and you're very important. And then you come home after a year of that and uh, you're supposed to, you know, you're like, I ran Baghdad and now I'm like stocking toilet yeah. paper at Walmart. Yeah. Like that's a, that's a pretty big drop off. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say like, and, and if it's not one thing, if it's a couple things, that's fine. But wh- what would you say, where are the areas where we could be doing better as a country for veterans that we're currently not? Like, what are the ones that would have the biggest impact, do you think? One thing that I think would have the, the biggest impact is, um, you know, we have a GI Bill um, for uh, for education, and it was sort of loosely based on um, the GI Bill passed uh, after World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, and a lot of the the soldiers who came home because they learned the lessons of World War One, they didn't take care of their 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 returning mm-hmm. troops, um, and so a lot of um, tr- you know soldiers who came home they took advantage of these education benefits. They got they they went to school, they got educated, they were it gave them upward mobility, but it also gave them the ability to um, a career. It gave them a, a, a path to a career post military. And so we have to really, when we just talk about like the GI Bill or education, they put all these arbitrary limits on it. It can only be, you know, you only have it for 10 years. It can only be used for this. It has to be sent directly to the school. They don't give the money to the soldiers. There's a lot of bureaucratic hoops to jump through 
Um, you can transfer it to your kid, but again, that expires after 10 years. So if you don't have like an 18 year old kid within 10 years of your deployment, like you lose the benefit, like that's all, why are you putting all those things on it? Just give them yeah. the money, give them the yeah. fucking money to do, to better their lives. And, and, you know, maybe there's people like me, like I qualify 100% for, um, for, uh, the, the 9-11 GI bill. Um, I can't use <laughs> the credits because I had already gotten my master's degree by the time they passed that bill and it's not retroactive. So I got, I have, you know, all the student loan debt because I went to Brandeis and then I went to NYU, two of the most expensive schools. Um, well, at country. least you have that and, uh, fat military paycheck <laughs> to finance it, right? Yeah, I got that. I got that <laughs> nice fat military contract and that uh, that uh, fat MFA that's, uh, yeah. that's sitting there on the shelf. <laughs> yeah. there, uh, you know, super super smart on my part. You know, double major in yeah. employment there, going into the arts. Um, and uh, <laughs> but yeah, so if we just if we really, it's not necessarily how much money you're spending on them. It's how you're spending that money on them. And I think if we just invested a little bit more in actual real ways in which we could take that same amount of money, either give it to them to, you know, invest in or buy a house or go back to school or pay off your loans or do whatever. It's like you earned this, use it to better yourself and give yourself, um, we just need to give them a little more mobility. Um, and stop putting so many restrictions because the default seems to be that you know, the default is always treating them like they're going to misuse th- this money somehow. Yeah. And it's like, look, you send them off to war and you bring them home, you know, <laughs> you set aside money to educate them and to uh, help put them on this career path. So just give it to like, have a little faith that with a little bit of instruction, they can, they can use this money wisely to improve their, yeah. their lives. Yeah. You know, something you touched on uh, just a little you know, a moment ago was you were talking about the impact war has on the psyche. And how do you think we're doing in terms of healthcare? Like, how are these guys? So these folks come back, obviously they've, they've, they've been literally in a war zone and, and obviously there's, there's, there's probably a lot of adjustment that needs to happen there. How, How are we doing with the folks that come back on that front? Do you feel? Um, we've, we're actually, we've been doing better than we had in mm-hmm. the past. Um, obviously the, the, the VA needed a, a revamping. Yeah. Um, and I think we, we got there. Um, now we have a lot of specialists who, you know, um, we'll say mental health is part of the healthcare system yeah. now, which, it, you know, that was sort of an overlooked part and now it's, it's really an essential part. Um, but you know, physical health as well. Um, VA centers have been getting better. Um, and I think that the, uh, the community has been very good at trying to take yeah. care of each other. Uh, but, uh, you know, we still have a long way to go. And I think that, but because, because we have a long way to go in this country, uh, regarding mm-hmm. healthcare and we're really bad about preemptive healthcare or making preemptive healthcare a priority. Um, and I, and I think that that is, um, such an essential uh, you know, the, the, just a little bit of time up front saves you so much uh, grief on the back end. Yeah, well, that you know, it's something that we that you and I talked about a, a while back, and and also something I talked about with one of my earlier guests this month, which is, you know, we 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 tend to view the the national defense, we tend to view the the military as being a matter of hardware, you know, like mm-hmm. trucks tanks planes right. bombs guns so on and and with and and I, I guess we don't necessarily view 
having a holistic or having a strong nation from a holistic standpoint as being essential to that as well. And not just from the obvious threats of, you know, cyber attack and information warfare, uh, but just from the sense of having a healthy population with functioning infrastructure. Um, well, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I know we've talked about this a little bit um, in terms of what does national defense yeah. mean? And, and to me, um, you're absolutely right, but it's, but it's multi-tiered. Uh, the holistic approach, I think, is the, is, the, is the most successful approach, in my opinion, when you start viewing your national defense as not just bullets and bombs, but also the health of the people, the education of the people, um, the, uh, and, and the stability, having an infrastructure in place in which they uh, are um, on equal mm-hmm. footing. And they're not concerned about, um, out, you know, they're not susceptible. People are susceptible to cyber attack and to disinformation because they're not well educated. People are susceptible um, to, uh, let's say, um, attacks on, uh, you know, our, our food or the, or agriculture. Um, so, so you know, a, a strong FDA is important so that we we know where our produce is coming from and where our meat's coming from. Um, you know, that's that type of stuff. Um, people need to be yeah. healthy. I mean, wars are won and lost by, by starving armies. Um, you know, uh, you go back through history and some of the, 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 the greatest battles, uh, were won because, uh, one army starved the other army and, uh, they were just too weak to fight anymore. Yeah. So these are all real concern. I mean, you can make a very strong argument for, uh, for healthcare, for education, um, for housing, for um, and and uh, for job training to be as essential a component of national defense as the bullets and bombs and the hardware as well. I remember reading an article where someone from the military was talking about how there are fewer people fit for service in the general population mm-hmm. as just a result of of poor health. You know, so in. in- yeah, I mean, you know, that's the the baseline is physical fitness. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we need people who are physically fit. Yeah, um, and we're we're when we're talking about and then physical health, but then mental fitness as well. Yeah. Um, we want people, uh, you know, look, you have you have psych evaluations and you have, but but also you should have a baseline of education. Um, you should be aware. You know, we get we get trained on a variety of things, not just in physical movements, but we're, we're trained all the time on, on, um, how to analyze a threat and react to a threat. And so you need to, you, that's, that's a type of education. That's an awareness. And so when you're, uh, when you're looking at the larger scope of things, um, one country that I think does it right, um, which, you know, it's funny. It's funny that um, right wingers have adopted Israel as like their their Middle Eastern mm-hmm. state um, uh, because they 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 seem to like uh, they like the the, the they like <laughs> they like the bomb part, but they don't like anything else that Israel done uh, does, which is very socialist. They have socialized medicine. They yeah. have socialized education. Um, they have socialized universal service. Everyone is uh, eighteen. You have to do some form of. Uh, service to the country. Usually that's military service, but they can also be working on a kibbutz or uh, building roads or whatever. Um, So those things are, you know, those things would be, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, you know, they, they'd be screaming about socialism in this country if you were to say, well, let's make uh, education part of uh, the defense budget. Let's make healthcare part of the defense budget. But that's how Israel solves that. All, you know, they, there's a lot that's made about how much money is spent on national defense for Israel. But the secret in Israel is all their money is considered national defense. And then they, then they spread it out to the programs that need it. Rather than pitting groups against each other, like, hey, do we need this money for education or do we need this money for healthcare? It's all just considered going toward national defense. And then no one, and then no one blinks about Well, that's it. Money. And I mean, to be honest, like, what's the sense of being able to bomb the world eight times over when your own country is crumbling from the inside? You know, number one. Right. Number two, I have never met an out of shape Israeli. Not once. <laughs> I have, <laughs> not I, once, I have not never, I've met a fair number of them of all ages. I have never met one of them that looked like they were carrying maybe more than 10 pounds. And, and, yeah. and so I know there are people listening. Maybe you could lose a little weight or whatever. That's cool. You know, it, it happens, but don't go talking a big game about, you know, don't go talking a big game about national defense and about how kids aren't ready for the battlefield when you can't get up a flight of stairs without like losing your breath, you know? That's right. Mm-hmm. Now, now to mm-hmm. be fair though, um, you know, I, I think that is- Israel's also not using Big Macs as interrogation methods. True. So, you know, we might have, we might have one step up. On That's them. our <laughs> hidden edge. That's why they haven't cracked it. Our hidden edge. That's why they haven't cracked it. <laughs> Shifting gears a bit here. One of the things that came up in an earlier interview was the structure that traditionally existed to balance out the civilian role in military affairs is 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 kind of wobbling a bit now. And and obviously in this country mm-hmm. we are founded on the pr- principle of a civilian led military and yet at this point in time what we're seeing is a lot of those civilian positions in the Department of Defense are going unfilled. And what's the impact of that, do you think, on our overall strategy? Well, I I don't think that it's just the civilian military divide there either. Like, I don't think it's just about the you know civilian control versus military yeah. control or whatever. I think it's about um, having qualified people in leadership roles. And what we're seeing is... Uh, there are a lot of people in leadership roles who have been forced out or have uh, left, and those positions are still unfilled. Or you have acting, uh, uh, you have people in acting leadership positions, and that's no way to run <laughs> any organization, never mm-hmm. mind the military. Um, and that can be dangerous. And look, systems only work as well as the people running them. You could have the best system in place, but if you don't have uh, people with expertise who are qualified and competent running that system, it's going to fall apart. And so if your intent is uh, to not make the system work, or if you don't believe in that system, the best way to, to dismantle that system is just either put incompetent people in leadership positions or mm-hmm. put no one in charge and just let it fall mm-hmm. apart. Yeah, I'm going to kind of go out on a limb here and ask you to engage in speculation. You know, when when you look at the <laughs> sure. the current administration, do you feel it's an issue of wanting to change the system or do you feel it's maybe an issue of not valuing those leadership roles and not va- 
I don't think I, I don't think leadership goals are valued. Um, and now, if we're if we're truly Let's speculating, go. if we're truly speculating, you know, our primary adversaries in the world, um, and we have to remember, America is a very young country and hasn't been a world power very long in the grand scheme mm-hmm. of history. Um, and we've had several other countries who grew to be very powerful empires and world leaders, and uh, they mm-hmm. got toppled, and uh, they're still kicking around. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they always, in the 20th century, right into the 21st century, they took a backseat mm-hmm. to the U.S. The primary goal of any major adversary for the United States is to undermine our system of government and to undermine our most valued institutions to destabilize our country because that basically forces us off the platform as a, as a world mm-hmm. leader. That's how you topple a world leader. You know, uh, <laughs> to, to sort of paraphrase um, uh, Captain America's villain Baron Zemo from uh, the movie Civil War, uh, <laughs> he says, you know, an empire the self from with, without can rebuild, but you, you bring down an empire from within and that's gone from forever. And so it's like you sort of like let them do it to themselves, which is why disinformation campaigns, that's why Facebook is, is killing us more effectively than any terrorist attack. It's, it's um, the spread of disinfo from anti-vaxxers to um, just spreading fear and distrust. And um, it's, it's um, causing huge racial divisions. It's emphasizing the problems. It's devaluing uh, you know, progress. It is, um, it is amplifying hate speech under the guise of free speech. And this is one of the most critical things for Americans today is that we, <laughs> if there's no one in charge, we have to mm-hmm. take charge. We have to take charge together. We have to come together because that, that's still what the system in place demands that we have a choice. We're a government of the people, for the people, by the people. We don't have faceless governments. We don't have kings. We don't have an aristocracy that tells us what to do and we just abide by it. We're supposed to have an active role in our government. We're supposed to be active participants on all levels. And that needs to start at the, at the local level. And we need to, we need to really start reevaluating um, what we're doing. So all that is to say that if you were an adversary like, say, Russia, um, who continues to benefit from the destabilization and um, uh, of uh, American institutions, whether it's the free press, whether it's the government itself, um, disaster response, whether it's uh, wars um, or, the, or, the, or our military alliances with uh, longtime allies, um, any of that, um, this is a gift. Whether it's intentional or not, this is a gift to our adversaries um, when there is this much instability and or incompetence. Yeah, and this is the second time it's come up this month. And and I think what, what I find interesting and kind of frightening is how good Russia was at figuring out what gets us to fight. And Yeah, I mean it's not difficult. Yeah, it's true. Petulant, true. <laughs> petulant children. But I mean I mean, <laughs> seriously, it was like they they had a room and they were like, what would an American put on Facebook after three glasses of wine? And they just nailed the list. Yeah. 
But it and what's amazing about it is it it crosses political lines as well. It it plays to anyone who is zeal uh, who has any political zealotry. Yep. Which the more polarized people become, the more effective that disinformation campaign becomes because then you make it us mm-hmm. or them. That's why Republicans are very good at that, and Democrats who tend to be a little more. Uh, loosely, they're, the Democrats aren't really like a solid block like Republicans are. They're more like a loose knit coalition of people that kind of have overlapping yeah. interests by well, mistake. Yeah, absolutely. No, I <laughs> so. I'd agree. I would agree with that wholeheartedly because you know I'll tell you. I mean, and you know, for years I identified as Republican, and probably sure. around the Bush administration was when I just dropped out because I was like, this is, you know, you've you've get you've thrown away fiscal discipline. And right. I mean, look, if you believe in like small government and lower taxes and, and fiscal discipline, that's a classic right conservative yeah. argument. I get it. But when you have Republicans who don't act that way, then it's like, well, then you're no longer yeah. that party. Then you're no there longer are that. The, there are the and so there yeah, that's exactly it. And so um I, I think what you have is you the Republican Party on the whole tends to have, I would agree, a very homogenized block in terms of the types of people who who, who support them. Um, it's a little more diffuse on the Democrat side, and the tr- and because of that, the triggers don't work quite as well. So um, there are there right. definitely triggers. I think the gun debate is is one specifically where you can you can automatically increase your contributions as a Democratic candidate if you just so much as utter the word AR fifteen. You know, um, so there, the, the triggers are there, but I, I would agree in, in today's day and age where you are left to choose between what you see is presented as fact from the intelligence agencies and, and so sure. on, and or to believe a narrative of a shadowy deep state cabal. Uh, looking to overthrow the government, I, I would say that that again, if you are on the Republican side, you are going to indulge more in conspiracy theory and speculation because you have to basically find reasons not to believe the information presented to you is valid. But then think about how insane it is that you have this crazy on the right right now. You have this like crazy conspiracy that somehow um, Democrats got their shit together enough with all of our allies, including Ukraine, to, to coordinate this uh, the appearance of Russian collusion with the president who's now in charge as the president only to lose the election. Like, it makes no sense. The, the logic flaws, like, oh, Hillary did Benghazi and did all of this and, and fixed the election just so she would lose? Like, I, that's insane. Yeah. Like, if, if, she, if, if your conspiracy were true, then she'd be president. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and you'd all probably either be dead or, or or you'd be in cages instead of, you know, migrant children trying yes. to flee oppression. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like I look, the logic flaw is insane to me. And meanwhile, you have actual conspiracies which aren't even being hidden. They're happening live on television. We're having impeachment hearings in which lifelong Republican – uh, civil servants are saying, I've seen a lot of things in my life yeah. and this is fucked up. Well, and, and I, <laughs> you know? and, yeah. And I think the, the sad thing about it now is that we are at a point where those impeachment proceedings 
are going to be seen by either partisan side as exactly what they want to see. So both sides are going to see their version of the truth in those proceedings, and there will be zero uh, there'll be zero conclusion from it. It'll just it'll just strengthen things, you know. Well, it's it is unfortunate that we don't have a Walter Cronkite, or there's no um, you know. Look, there's if this were in the Watergate era, and uh, you know, the, the Nixon would be would they would, the, as soon as soon as Ambassador uh, Taylor started speaking, um, you know, they would. I don't even know if Nixon would have made it to the helicopter. Yeah, um, you know, and so we've come so far from where it are, and part of it is the the Fox News machine, the propaganda machine, because yep. that's very effective. Um, but when you're when you have wrapped your entire identity in um, us or them, and you make it like a sporting event, and there are no consequences mm-hmm. to it, oh, well, of course they're going to act like this way because winning well, is the most important thing. Not the truth, not governing, not actually following through on the things that you're supposed yep. to be doing. Um, it's just about my team won. Suck it that up. Is what, and that is what we as a country have been reduced to, unfortunately. And, uh, and, and, and I, think that, I, I think that that seems to be the objective now. Is, I mean, I'm, and, yeah. and I, I was going to say, you know, I, I have a lot of friends in Facebook who post very, very frequently politically on both sides. And both of them seem to have the same conclusion, which is if we boiled it down to a one-party state where the people I don't agree with are no longer there, everything would be better. It is, it, it all, and, and, right. <laughs> and that to me is inherently undemocratic. Um, you know, I. Well, of course, I mean, the whole system is based on that we have two conflicting ideals with one stated goal. We have the same goal. We just have the conflicting ideas of how to get there. And in that conflict, we come up with a compromise that moves us forward to reaching the overall goal, which is to form a more perfect. But compromise. Oh, go on. Sorry. I didn't mean to. No, no, no. Oh yeah. I mean, but compromise is, is, is viewed as, as heresy is viewed as, as traitorous. I mean, if you look at, Ann Coulter's reaction every time Donald Trump suggests anything short of a moat filled with alligators and a wall with spikes on it at the Mexican border, she blows a gasket. And and so any and all compromise is again viewed as 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 treachery. And and so how do you -hmm. you know how do you come back from that? Like how you know? I don't know. And, and it's not, I'm going to say it's, it's also the left has to accept that there are sometimes unintended consequences to things that were done at the time. I, you know, the, the right seems to be totally disassociated from reality. Um, yeah. currently <laughs> like just all evidence that like evidence won't change their mind. So that's unfortunate, but, but on the left, there's this purity test that's happened where we're judging people and decisions made 30 years ago that remove context from it, and we're judging them by the standards of today. And a lot of those decisions made 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, help lead to more progressive uh, mm-hmm. laws today. But you can't just jump from, from you know, 
1978 feelings on gay people to 2019 yeah. feelings on gay people or the LGBT community as a whole. That was, that was, there were many steps that were needed to bring the majority of the American population into a place where people, you know, where, where we could expand rights to the people mm-hmm. who deserve it. And it's not that they don't deserve the rights or that people were trying to stop them from having rights. It was trying to figure out the best way to get them the rights from people who were in power who just refused outright to acknowledge mm-hmm. them as human beings. Yeah. And, and now once that happened, those little things, ha- you know, those little subtle changes, we went from a policy of don't ask, don't tell in the military, which was reversing a policy of you could not be gay in the military. And that eventually got us to, yep. it's fine. It's okay now. It's not, it's not against any regulation and no one will be uh, persecuted in the army for being gay. That, that was a long time coming. But, to, but, then to, but to blame, say, Democrats in the 90s for passing Don't Ask, Don't Tell, it's like, well, you have no idea how right-wing the country was in 1992, Give me a break. Like Rambo, Rambo was a Saturday morning cartoon in the, in the mid 90s. We were coming out of like the Reagan era of, you know, break, tear down the wall and we were punching commies. People and, were uh, honestly asking the question, is boy George gay? Like people, he, he yeah. could, he, there was a closet big enough to hold boy George. You know, like, they're like is he gay? Do you yeah. think? Yeah. So like, please don't, you know, and. Look, the crime bill is another um, another example. Did it lead to excessive mass incarceration? Absolutely. But was that the intended consequence? No. The the intention of that was to clean up the streets and to curb not only gang violence, but we were in uh, we there was an unprecedented spike in violence in the in the eighties into the nineties, and that helped curb it. That gave police the tools to help get communities under control. And you know who supported the crime bill? the entire congressional black caucus and they supported it because it helped their communities. But you know what else we got? And this goes back to the idea of compromise. Was that ideal? No, because that's, you know, very law and order anti-democratic, right? So what did the Democrats do? They said, okay, we'll pass these restrictive laws. However, we'll, we'll get you your three strikes laws, but we're going to put the violence against women act in there. And we're going to have a, uh, a curb on um, gun manufacturers. We're going to have a, a, a ban on the assault rifle for 10 years. That was also part of the, the crime bill. So you have to look at it holistically. And then you say, okay, what worked and what didn't work? And that's not the be all end all law. You don't pass a law and then you go, well, we did it. We're all done. You go, okay, what were the effects? What were the results? Is there something we can do better? Okay, let's clean this up. You don't bash everyone for saying, well, you supported the crime bill in the 90s. Well, it seemed like the right thing to do. And if we created an unintended consequence, mm-hmm. let's go fix that mm-hmm. now. Yeah, I mean, that's the the ultimate thing and something I've discovered as I've kind of gone through this this series is, you know, the the role of U.S. government or how U.S. government functions is very much a long continuing conversation and these things we view as absolute mm-hmm. whether it's the constitution the supreme court the presidency these are living breathing changing bodies and the idea behind them is that someone crazy isn't able to come in and just jerk the wheel and drive the whole country into a ditch the, the you know the idea what? is that they can come out and and do whatever crazy thing they want to do and we can decide and after a certain number of years you know we want to keep going in this direction or no we don't 
and it just it, it's right. it, it averages out. So you know, again, I would say as somebody who's been fortunate enough to be on the right end of a lot of those policies, I would say it's easy for me to tell somebody to exercise patience. You know, um, but but right. I'd agree right. that's that's there's the alternative i think would be for uh, very drastic unpredictable uh action instability and I, I i don't know if the if the cure in that instance is any better than the disease well and the larger problem is if it's mm-hmm. a pendulum swing right um the the more you swing the pendulum to one extreme or the other it's going to yeah. cut the people in the middle. <laughs> like that's what you're doing. You're just slicing up uh, the middle. And again, I'm not saying like, what, you know, there, there are larger issues um, that should, that should require people to act immediately. And then there's some things we can take yeah. incrementally. And the hope is that you elect leaders who know the difference yep. between the two and have a sense of purpose and have a sense of yeah. accountability and have a sense of priority knowing this is the mm-hmm. most important thing. And, and this is what we're, you know, the, the most important thing is, look, if we had an actual debate about guns in this country, we'd be able to sit down and say, look, what's, we're not, to, okay, let's forget gun bans or protecting guns or whatever. What is the end result that we want? Do we want to drop in gun violence? Okay, what are the best ways to go about it? Let's try certain things see if they work. If they don't, we'll change it to this. But instead, we're just screaming at each other about, we can't even get the mm-hmm. process started. And and the more you run up against that wall, the more extreme and, and, uh, and partisan people are going to get over it, because then it becomes a question of, well, I identify as this political party, therefore I must have this very specific view on yeah. this specific yeah. issue. I'm going to ask you, so I've got one final topic I wanted to discuss with you and it kind of, you know, I think dovetails into this, which is mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're now at a point where folks enlisting in the army or in the, in the, you know, we're at a point where folks enlisting in the armed forces are, aren't old enough to have been born, or I should say, I, I, sh- I should say are, are younger than the wars we've been fighting, you know? So, so yeah, well, I mean, look, we're, we're, we are getting to a point in two years, uh, in two years, there will be people who could sign up who weren't even born yeah. when nine 11 happened. Yeah. And obviously you, you started in 99, um, shortly thereafter mm-hmm. the war. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Look, what did you do? Wait, are you blaming <laughs> yeah. me for nine 11? I was getting there. I was going to, I was going to use that in the the next hour, but um, yeah. So, so, so obviously you broke the country and now it's so, so we're, we've been now at war for almost two decades. Um, What, how do you feel about that? Like as a, as a member of the armed services and, you know, as an American in general. Not great, Bob. Um, It's it's not a great feeling. Uh, it's, we're not, <laughs> we, I, I, I don't think we were, um, I don't think we were meant to be at war this long. Um, uh, and over, certainly yeah. not over two generations. Um, you know, it's really, that's one of the things that ended the Vietnam war. Um, and, uh, we don't have that mechanism in place after, after mm-hmm. Vietnam, they got rid of the draft. 
And so I think one of the mechanisms of accountability was taken away. And, um, and when people don't feel, again, attached to it, um, there, there just seems to be like, well, they signed up, they knew what they were signing up for. And I think, uh, I think that it definitely takes a toll on the psyche of, of, of the troops, but I think it should be taking a larger toll on everyone mm-hmm. who hasn't gone. I really do. I think it, I think that, you know, there should be some sort of reckoning at least, but, but, or an acknowledgement that, Oh, wow, we've fought, you know, a a war for, for 20 years, sometimes on, on two different fronts and in various countries. And, um, I don't know if, I, I don't know what our goals are anymore, but I certainly know that, uh, if we have men and women who are fighting in this war that weren't even born when the war started. Um, that, that seems to run counter to all the other American uh, ideals and values that we hold. Um, it, it seems to run counter to um, the responsible use of our power. And I think that when you no longer know why you're somewhere <laughs> or why you're doing what you're doing, uh, you, should probably, you should probably take stock and, and reevaluate the situation. I think we can cap it there, man. That was fucking great. You know, after listening to this interview again, it really struck me how, as of October of this year, there were people old enough to enlist in the war in Afghanistan who were born after it was declared. And part of the reason this can happen is because we, as a civilian population, don't really feel the cost of war. You know, according to the numbers from the USVA, Veterans between the ages of 18 and 45, these are the people most likely to have participated in the war on terror, comprise about 3.4% of the total U.S. population. So that means we're really not sharing in the sacrifice here. Um, Add to this the fact that these wars have largely been financed by debt, something that keeps popping up in my conversations this month, by the way. And we don't even share in the financial burden, at least not for now. So... You know, there are two easy but possibly controversial ways we can share more in the sacrifice. And one simple one is make a war tax. If our troops are deployed, there has to be a commensurate tax hike to pay for it. No more paying for debt. Number two, reinstate the draft. The reality is people are going to think a lot harder about sending people abroad if it's their friends, their relatives, their sons and daughters who have to go to war. Um, Now, both options might sound extreme. But if the alternative is almost two decades at war with no discernible mission, I think a little discomfort at home might not be the worst thing. Now, we'll be wrapping up next week with the Data Monkey. Hope you'll join me. As always, thanks to Tech for the music. Thanks to my producer, Jason Putney, for polishing this diamond. Until the next, this is Dan Sally, signing off.